to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Welcome to you all. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy, and it's my great pleasure to welcome our guest today. Philip Martin is a uh, distinguished journalist who has been uh, traveling Boston and the world uh, as an investigative reporter, largely for WGBH. He's uh, been on television. He's one of the people who sort of tries to explain the city to itself. And uh, he is a, uh, someone we have uh, been eager to have come talk to us about, about uh, what he does and how he does what he does. And we're very glad to have you, Philip. Well, th thank you, Alex. Much appreciated. And, uh, you know, before I even get started, I want to uh, applaud you. Uh, we under I understand your, uh, your last day is in June. June 30th. And, and you've made quite a Not my last day, period. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, At least no. I hope not. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you've done remarkable uh, work, and uh, you've brought quite a few people uh, into, this, uh, into this setting uh, to talk about journalism and uh, what, we, what we do and how we do it. So I, I want to thank you very much. Well, thank you. I appreciate that very much. I'm just glad that um, we, we did not have a situation like the Rolling Stone one. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, you know, the thing is that I, I hope that maybe we'll have our, as we talk about these things uh, later on, um, I think that this is a, this is really an instructive moment for journalism in an odd way. It is. But yeah. in any event, thank you very much yes, and uh, welcome. I want to say hello to all you folks and uh, thank you for having me. Um, you know, it's quite often, you know, it's always hard to figure out where to start a talk like this, uh, you want to know if you try to figure out if it should be formal, if it should be informal, and I and I think I'm going to sort of com combine the two, uh, if you will, to talk about my own trajectory in journalism, and I'd like to start where I what I consider to be the intersection, if you will, of memory, history, um, and symbolism, and that for me this intersection of memory, history, and symbolism. I was trying to figure out what images are evoked with, uh, at that intersection. And the memory that came to me, the first and most stark memory, uh, is the intersection of, of uh, Mack Avenue and Mount Elliott in Detroit. That's where I uh, came of age. Uh, this is, uh, if you fast forward many years now uh, to the present moment, uh, I've looked up that intersection and found that it's considered one of the most dangerous intersections in the country, uh, which um, is unfortunate uh, because what it fails to convey, probably now and certainly uh, when I was coming up, uh, is the complexity of that area and the complexity of, of, of coverage of poor people in general. And that was the, because of that lack of complexity, even at the young age I was in 1967, uh, 68, I think that that is what sparked my interest in this thing we call journalism. Um, because my neighborhood was a neighborhood of, um, of full-bodied individuals. Uh, it was a neighborhood where I would skip mass in order to go to fish fries at Mother Hook's Baptist Church, which was across the street from where I grew up on Meldrum. 
uh, fish fries were far more interesting uh, than, uh, than serving mass on, some, on most Fridays. And uh, the, but what I constantly found was uh, because my, even though I had, my mom uh, had a third grade education and my dad had a, my stepfather had a third grade education, the two of them, uh, they were very smart. And they basically uh, pushed us into watching the news. We watched the news every night. And they also pushed us uh, uh, to the library. And at the library, we found newspapers. The Detroit Free Press, in this case, was the newspaper that was uh, our newspaper of choice. Uh, it gave us more of a worldview and more of a view of ourselves than the Detroit uh, news we found. Uh, and of course, uh, but it was what a healthy uh, environment that was, the notion of a two newspaper town, uh, just absolutely amazing. But for, we opted for uh, the Detroit Free Press. Anyway, I'm bringing up 1967 in this intersection because it was later in 67 that um, something occurred that was called the Detroit Riots. Uh, a lot of people in my neighborhood who were politicized referred to it as the Detroit Uprisings uh, rather than used the term riot. Um, and I understood later a good uh, why they used that term and also why that term uh, existed in, if you will, opposition to other people's worldview. Other people again saw it as a as a riot. And as the coverage of uh, the coverage in this neighborhood, <coughs> I remember a, a particular image during 1967 June uh, when um, on the other side of town. Uh, buildings were set on fire. And then on my side of town, the east side, uh, this, this riot or this uprising, if you will, it started to spread. There was this extraordinary conflagration. An image that always uh, sticks in my mind is of a kid named Bobo. That was his nickname. I'm not sure what his real name was, but his name was Bobo. And I remember, didn't like him very much. He was a, sort of a bully in the neighborhood. Uh, but remembered my mom and my dad's anguish to seeing this young man being beaten up against a tree by National Guardsmen uh, in uh, 1967, June, as the riots were, um, were taking place. It was a curfew on. He had violated a curfew. Uh, he was uh, being beaten up by, um, uh, by National Guardsmen and police. And I remember my dad said there's no excuse for him, for it. He didn't like the kid either. But what he was seeing out in the streets was something extraordinary, he thought, but not out of the ordinary. It was extraordinary in the sense that it was just right there. There, was no, there were no filters. Uh, the kid was just being beaten up. And that image stuck with me for years uh, because I remember reading the account of, uh, of beatings and shootings and gunfire and flames uh, and remember thinking, well, that doesn't jive with what I just saw out on, on the streets. There's, there's, a, there's this uh, picture that I'm reading about in the newspaper, and I'm hearing our local anchor, I think his name, if I remember correctly, was Bill Bonds, uh, describing, oh, you're from Detroit? Toledo. Toledo, that's right. <laughs> Bill Bonds. You got the Detroit stations. You got the, you got the Detroit stations. Uh, remember hearing, referring uh, to people in the neighborhood as wild animals. Uh, and, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, I, I, just, I was at a fish fry two weeks ago, I saw nothing that resembled a wild animal uh, at that fish fry at Mother Hook's Baptist Church. Um, 
they were church-going people and they were sinners and they were all having a good time. They were complex uh, and they were flawed, but they were also full-bodied. But the portrayal oftentimes, and we, again, we read the newspaper and we watched the news, was something that seemed to be uh, in, in juxtaposition to what I was saying, to, be, to, to seem like totally uh, uh, caricatures, not the people that I was reading about. Fast forward uh, a few years in Detroit, I found myself, interestingly, perhaps coincidentally, I'm not sure if it was or not, working on the docks of the Detroit Free Press uh, as a 17-year-old, uh, uh, as a, as a working in the docks. It lied about my age. You know, you weren't supposed to work there until you were 18. But had gotten a job through a friend and was, and had the, uh, if you will, the fortune of coming, running across reporters um, who were, we worked on the docks, so this was the back of the newspaper. They came through the front door, which of course was a whole different matter. But there was one fellow who was always uh, friendly and always wanted to talk to the guys who, who worked uh, delivering the newspapers around the area. Interestingly, he was a labor reporter. Uh, and he, uh, so we would have these discussions about uh, what my reality was and what he was reporting. He was reporting in the UAW and on plants closing across Detroit. Uh, he had reported on the Hamtramck uh, wildcat strike, which was uh, a group of workers, in black and white workers, in Detroit, basically, who had uh, defied the UAW uh, and uh, had gone out on a wildcat strike. I knew about this intimately because my cousin was one of the wildcat um, strikers. And, and I was, what I was uh, uh, happy about was that the coverage by this reporter, what I was happy about with this reporter was that what he was writing about did, in fact, jive with what my um, my cousin was was saying about the uh, about what was happening in the Detroit auto uh, industry in in the city and and particularly the reality of my uh, of my cousin Cyrus and his uh, and what he was experiencing in the auto plant and so I took a a, a real liking to this this uh, this reporter um, and and start asking him about this thing he called journalism. And it stuck in my head uh, as I was uh, continuing, again, working on the docks of the Detroit Free Press. Um, later uh, in school at Wayne State University, I uh, joined the uh, paper, the student newspaper, briefly, very briefly. Um, it was not, it, it turned out, uh, that enamored with the structure uh, that uh, uh, was involved in journalism. I liked the way I wrote. And um, uh, and sort of it sort of pushed back against the, you know like the uh, the edicts of uh, the of the newspaper at that time, and while while at Wayne State University I, I was re hearing and reading about um, Boston, and when I was growing up, when the notion of Boston was uh, extraordinary, I mean the notion of this place called Boston uh, from the distance of Detroit uh, in my neighborhood, Boston seemed exotic. Uh, and it was also the home of Harvard University, 
of which, to be perfectly honest with you, I, did, I knew very little about. It was something that was out there. You heard about, uh, but it wasn't something that was part of my reality. And the Boston I was hearing about was a very different Boston. I was hearing about a Haitian man being pulled uh, out of his car and beaten in South Boston. And I was hearing about a woman, white woman, being set on fire uh, the year before. And I was hearing about um, school buses driving through white neighborhoods and being stoned with uh, rocks and bricks and bottles. And, and I'm thinking um, in my, on my perch in Detroit, well, that's a very different uh, vision of uh, Boston than the one that my friend Willie, who's our next door neighbor, told, told us about. Willie had been um, in the Navy and had uh, been in Newport News and then had traveled up uh, from Newport News uh, to Boston and then to Maine. And we would sit around, uh, we would sit around the uh, a table at Willie's house, and he would talk to us about Boston and New England. And it was a very different place that he was describing than suddenly I'm hearing about in 1974. Um, and I said, well, I want to write about this place called Boston. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm curious about this place. And so the following summer, in the summer of 75, I came out to, to Boston with uh, some other students and was absolutely astounded that it was much worse than I thought it was in terms of race relations. I can tell you a few stories. I don't want to get stuck on stories because stories only describe um, a part of life. Isn't that correct? But they also helped us, um, help us put in perspective what you might not have seen. Was who was in Boston in 1974, 75? But you've read about Boston, and Boston's reputation started to sort of uh, Peripherally, per peripherally, <laughs> like, uh, and, and, and it started to spread like a fire, if you will. Uh, and it, was a, it wasn't a good thing. Boston was almost equated with Birmingham, Mississippi. I mean, Birmingham, Alabama, rather, and with Jackson, Mississippi. And it was started to be equated in negative terms. And coming out to Boston, um, the, what I remember was um, at Carson Beach uh, seeing... Um, there was a demonstration at Carson Beach. I went to that demonstration. And at Carson Beach, you had on one side a huge mass of people in South Boston uh, who were leading a demonstration to keep um, blacks, Latinos uh, off the beach. This was all associated with busing and the response to court-ordered desegregation. This, uh, but, and I was uh, uh, trying to figure out what was this all about? Why are people being kept off the beach? And the more, it's like anything else, the more you read about it, the more you realize you have to go a lot deeper to understand what's going on here. Uh, and was always astounded to find out that the people who were, who were protesting against blacks and Latinos on this beach, many of them were in the same economic condition as blacks and Latinos who were coming to this beach. Um, and that brought me back to something that Steve Orr, that's his name. Um, I always confuse Steve Orr and Ralph Orr because the Orrs were a, a famous writing family, again, out of Detroit. Uh, but Steve Orr, uh, or Ralph Orr, I can't remember which one, was the writer at the Detroit Free Press, the labor writer. 
And he talked about, often talked about in his pieces, the uh, contradictions that existed um, in the auto plants where people were essentially tr trying, everyone's trying to get from point A to point B, this thing we call the middle class. And quite often they clashed over, uh, these, over how to get there. And in other words, race became uh, a part of the impediment to advancement or racism, if you will, became part of the, uh, the impediment to advancement. And what uh, was transpiring in the auto plants quite often in Detroit, I was seeing playing out on, an, on another scale uh, in, um, in Boston, on its beaches and in its schools, uh, and led by individuals with uh, strong political agendas. Louise Day Hicks was the head of the um, Boston School Committee. Uh, she became a city council person. Uh, and she was basically leaving, leading the charge. Um, this did not land me, I wrote a few pieces here and there, this did not land me a job in journalism. <laughs> uh, the, what it did though was it furthered my curiosity about this place called Boston. But it also scared me. I decided, well, I don't know if I can live in a place like this. And so one day, Shortly after being here uh, in 75, I was about to go back to Detroit. But I, and so I went back to Detroit and I looked around and the city over the course of a summer was in much worse condition than it had been when I left in the spring. And it was disheartening. I flipped a coin and said, where am I gonna go? Boston or the West Coast? I ended up going to the West Coast. Believe it or not, I found it too cold. <laughs> in the Bay Area. <laughs> I found it too, I said, my God, it's much too cold here. I went back to Detroit and I said to myself, I looked around and I really said to myself, I don't want to die here. Um, it was, uh, a, as much as I love the city, and I go back often, uh, as much as I love the city, at that point in my life, again, this is 19, um, uh, 75 going into 76, I still could not believe the conditions uh, that, had, uh, that had basically developed in Detroit. The auto plants that were the pride of Detroit were dying. Um, the job that my stepfather and stepmother worked, which was cleaning buildings at night, they were fewer and fewer buildings to clean uh, at night. I worked with my parents oftentimes cleaning those same buildings. Uh, and uh, taking a break to read uh, the magazines that were there in, the, in those buildings, Newsweek and Time. Again, uh, other ways of, of, of finding what else was happening in this world of ours. So I said, well, maybe I'll try Boston again. And went back uh, to Boston, and I'm gonna jump forward, um, forward uh, if you will, a bit got to Boston and found um, a, a fellow named Danny Schechter. Uh, anyone know who he is? <laughs> and um, Danny Schechter, I, I walked into this place, WBCN, and said, I want to intern for you. And he says, I don't know you from Adam. <laughs> and, and, and why would you want? Why would you want to do that? Well, I just heard you on radio, uh, on the radio, and I heard a report that you just did about poor people 
that basically uh, allowed uh, a different perspective, a perspective that was not stick figure. I'm sure these weren't my words at the time, but uh, this the summary of it was, um, uh, it's not a stick figure of poverty. It's not a, uh, it's not the one-dimensional view of poverty. You actually allow people to speak for themselves. You allowed a woman who was on welfare to speak for herself. And oftentimes, when you heard poor people, it was through the fiduciary of experts. Uh, uh, it was uh, so often poor people were not allowed to speak for themselves. And though I found some journalism where that was uh, the case, I, I found too many examples where the, the voice for the poor was uh, a very good man, but I think I uh, didn't agree with his world vision at the time, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Uh, the, the voices of the poor uh, were people like Edward Banfield uh, interpreting uh, reality for, um, uh, who wrote a, a book called The Unheavenly City, uh, which t talked about the sociology of, uh, of, of of poverty, if you will, and the sociology of poverty, again, looked like nothing I had seen growing up in Detroit. And it certainly didn't look like the folks I had seen at that fish fry uh, in the neighborhood of Mount Elliott and, um, um, and Mac Avenues. So I started interning for Danny Schechter, the news dissector, that was his name. Ridiculous name, but that was his name. <laughs> Danny Schechter, the news dissector, who I'm afraid just passed uh, a few weeks ago, and we uh, I give him a big shout out uh, because he was a good man. And so, uh, Danny started talking to me about uh, how do you produce a radio program, and how do you how do you basically give life to uh, uh, through through individuals uh, to individuals who uh, may be voiceless. Uh, and whether they be dock workers or whether they be um, uh, a welfare mother or whether, whether they be a marginalized Nicaraguan or uh, uh, someone from South Africa, uh, so on and so forth. And, and in talking about uh, individuals, we also talked about worldview. Uh, and I started looking uh, at the world. The world became a lot smaller. I hadn't traveled anywhere at this point. Uh, my travel uh, had, had included a, this exotic place called Boston, uh, and my travels had included uh, uh, once or twice going up to uh, to Canada, and certainly to family reunions uh, in Georgia uh, and Virginia. But I hadn't been out of the states other than uh, again uh, uh, being in, in Canada itself, up in uh, Toronto, uh, going up there for um, for oral interpretation festivals. That's something I was drawn to at that time and going up for a journalism uh, conference for young people uh, at that time. Again, the year, was, this is 1976 going into, going into 77 at this point. Let me uh, see if we can move forward a little bit more. Um, years later, after uh, basically trying to broaden my worldview through uh, self-education, uh, but also through uh, the, the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, where I finally uh, uh, succeeded in getting a degree. It took a while. Um, I essentially started working for Oxfam America. I wasn't, I wasn't into journalism at that point. Uh, there was no, uh, I didn't have a job in journalism. I dreamed of being a journalist, but I, at this point, was working for Oxfam. It was the second dream, if you will, 
that I entertained, and uh, the dream of working with um, poor people, if you will, um, the uh, indigenous people, working with people who were voiceless uh, in a way uh, through, the, through an organization that I had a great amount of respect for because they uh, emphasized this notion of self-development. And that was very important to me. I was leaving Oxfam after uh, heading up national projects and uh, spearheading programs called Hunger Banquets, which some of you have probably uh, uh, engaged in, and taking those Hunger Banquets to different levels. Uh, to uh, Hollywood, we took a, did a Hollywood Hunger Banquet, we did a Hunger Banquet in Congress, so on and so forth. But I wasn't feeling that this was actually making uh, a dent in terms of how I, again, was hoping to change the framework of assumption of how uh, poor people and how people of color, black people, Latinos were being uh, portrayed uh, in this thing we called journalism uh, by, uh, uh, by journalists. And I had the opportunity to go to South Africa in, 19, um, in 1992. That was the first time I was in South Africa. By this time, I had traveled a bit. I had been in Brazil and had written uh, a few op-eds for the Boston Globe about um, the mythology of racial democracy in Brazil. Uh, and had written about uh, and started to develop a, uh, uh, if you will, an expertise on Brazil and race, and started to look at race again in a universal way uh, as part of, it was part of the, di the dynamic that was spurring me uh, uh, in journalism, was to write about race and how race essentially framed quite a few things uh, in our society. Uh, and, and how race, when you took it outside of the United States, it still was, uh, it, 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 in many cases, it looked the same. Of course it was different. The dynamics, the circumstances were different, so on and so forth. But it also started, uh, there, was, there were several things that had in common. And what race had in common was colorism. This, uh, the hues and tones of, of, uh, of individuals often meant those hues and tones relegated them to a secondary place in many societies, whether it was Brazil or whether it was in the Middle East or any number of places. And this uh, was, became a theme, something I started to talk about. Of course, in South Africa, uh, you don't need you know, to, uh, it became a lot clearer in, in a place like South Africa because of the system of apartheid. Um, and in 1992, apartheid was still very much uh, in place, though they were working at it. And in, I had gone to South Africa on behalf of Interaction, uh, Consulting for Interaction, which was an organization, umbrella organizations of non-governmental organizations based in Washington, D.C. And I was looking at this, um, this, this organization. It wasn't a formal organization, but a group that existed within the South African security forces uh, that had made its presence uh, uh, known in neighboring states in Mozambique, uh, in, um, uh, uh, in Namibia, in Angola, and it was a third force. It was euphemistically referred to as the third force. And the third force was essentially uh, f um, security organizations that were working to undermine the, the march, if you will, of progress in Southern Africa. And in South Africa, after I was in 
uh, Angola briefly, then Zimbabwe, then Mozambique, and then finally arrived in South Africa. And I had an extraordinary experience of picking up a hitchhiker, uh, an Afrikaner. Um, and now, a lot of people would say, well, why would you pick up a hitchhiker anywhere? Uh, and, and I picked up hitchhikers because it was amazing what you could learn uh, from, from, uh, from individuals on the streets, strangers. This guy was an Afrikaner. And he said, and we talked about, um, uh, let me see if I brought that. I, I must have left it in the other room. I actually brought the article from the Boston Globe. I wrote about it uh, when I came back. The, and, he, and he said, you know, you folks, and that is to say Americans, uh, you know nothing about what's happening in our country. Um, the country is changing, yes, you know, but you don't understand that we're dealing with uh, this, uh, we're dealing with terrorism and we're dealing with, uh, uh, we're dealing with uh, people, you know, who really don't want to change. And what I found really remarkable about, uh, remarkable about this was I kept thinking, this is amazing. I would never get this perspective of if I was a, a black South African. I'm a white, I'm a white American, I'm mean a black American, I'm not a white American. I'm a black American listening to a South African. I want to, and it was a perspective that I found absolutely intriguing. Why? Because it, it, was, it was complex. There was a complexity that, uh, uh, that you don't always get and see. The, no, the notion of extending beyond stereotypes <coughs> meant that I can, I can figure out who this person is, perhaps, through this short ride uh, in Johannesburg from one part of the, uh, the highway to the next part of the highway. And so I wrote about this guy and figure out this is why the, ridding the country of apartheid will be very difficult. Because it's not just a question of security forces. It's a question of an individual who has a world view where he believes that the next government that comes to uh, that comes to power, if it's a black government, will also be a communist government and a terrorist government. It was quite. It was. It was absolutely amazing. Uh, I ended up writing a piece for the Boston Globe about this uh, this this trip, this uh, this journey, and this led to uh, writing more. Uh, and in 1994, I was back in South Africa, this time for the election of Nelson Mandela. And I was downtown when the bomb exploded in downtown Johannesburg uh, in April of, um, of that year, 1994. The election, of course, is in May. And spoke to someone at National Public Radio about this. And they said, well, why don't you uh, pull together a commentary? And why don't you come on board National Public Radio as a commentator? This is my way of saying this was the beginning of my modern career in journalism, was starting off as a commentator for National Public Radio. I was su surprised, actually, to find um, Bob Edwards of uh, the former uh, uh, voice for National Public Radio. I couldn't find all the comment, uh, the, the, my comments, um, uh, my commentaries for National Public Radio, but I found this one. Uh, if this little twirly thing would stop, uh, <laughs> let's see. Anyway, let's let's give it a second. The there you go. Oh, okay. Here we go. 
let me see if you can hear this. This is a, a year after I'd been there, and back in the United States, this is a commentary I had written after a bomb had uh, gone off in Oklahoma, uh, and thought about the what I just experienced in South Africa a year later after this bomb had gone off. And here's Bob Edwards introducing this comment, commentary. For commentator Philip Martin, the bombing in Oklahoma City and the nationwide search for suspects linked to right-wing paramilitary groups has brought back memories of another devastating attack. It happened just over a year ago. Martin was in South Africa observing the country's first multiracial elections. The explosion that nearly shook me from my hotel balcony high above Johannesburg on the morning of April 24th last year was not unlike the instrument of misplaced rage that destroyed the Oklahoma Federal Building, and with it, a nation's presumption of innocence. There in the South African streets littered with wreckage were the bodies of men and women who, had they lived a day longer, would have been able to vote for the first time in their lives. No doubt when terror struck Oklahoma, South Africans living in the high-rise apartments near where the car bomb exploded remembered that Sunday morning last spring, fusing headlines from America's present into their own nightmares of South Africa's past. South Africa and the United States have much more in common than unpleasant memories of April bombings and bad race relations. Both nations allow more arms and firepower to be placed in the hands of private citizens than any of the other industrial nations on Earth, and both have a large, disaffected, and violent right wing. In South Africa, a large number of weapons are in the hands of the angry white men on the right, who continue to oppose the government of Nelson Mandela. They share a common hatred of the federal government with America's growing right-wing movements and private militias, and a common love affair with the AK-47, bombs, and other accoutrements of terror. Every time interest groups take to the airwaves in support of assault weapons, weekend hunters or housewives holding aloft copies of the Second Amendment is not the image that comes alive for me. Rather, I recall driving from Memphis, Tennessee to Tupelo, Mississippi in 1979 to cover a Ku Klux Klan rally and passing a pickup truck with several guns on its rack. As our vehicles drew even, I glanced briefly into the eyes of the passenger, whose white sheeted sleeve waved like a flag in the wind as he puffed on a cigarette. I realized that we were heading to the same destination. What was most frightening about the Ku Klux Klan rally that was held that day was not just the large number of assault rifles, ammunition belts, and other weaponry displayed, but the thought that these weapons could one day be used against me. That was the, uh, that was one of many commentaries for NPR, and I'll tell you how this played out. Um, at that point in my life, I really was sort of, um, conflicted about journalism. Here I am offering opinion. That's what this was, of course, in, um, at the time this was, this was written. I'd start to be conflicted because I wasn't sure if I could, if I could really explore what I considered to be very uh, fundamental problems of race, and conflict and violence in our own nation as a journalist. I just wasn't sure. And the reason that I was uh, conflicted was largely because of the institutions that uh, 
that basically existed at that time and wondering if they would allow me to basically explore beyond a sort of standard, a standard, if you will, framework of assumption in terms of information. I started to realize that, yeah, there are, uh, like the complexity of this hitchhiker in, in South Africa, or like the complexity of any situation, uh, there are institutions basically that where they're that basically expand with um, with the type of journalism that you do. They expand with journalistic exploration, and I then uh, by coincidence, a few months later, a program appeared on Horizon called The World, PRI's The World, and I was uh, asked to come on board to help put this program together on, uh, on, uh, at WGBH, BBC. And at the WGBH and BBC, we started to work on international programs uh, that explored any number of, uh, of topics, including the topic I felt had been, most, uh, had been greatly obfuscated uh, in terms of uh, uh, our coverage, and that is the intersection of international relations and race. Um, and I started to basically work on that. Um, the, this led, uh, I'm not going to go through my whole resume, but uh, I went from there from the world uh, to, um, uh, to, to uh, working on a, to getting a Japan fellowship. And, when I, and I, went out, I went to Japan to do a uh, work on journalism looking at bureaucracy and looking at other disaffected um, uh, minorities, if you will, in Japan. Barakamine, uh Koreans living in Japan, uh, and um, uh, also minority Chinese in Japan. And was found it absolutely fascinating, again, to, to these themes that I'd been uh, hearing and, and reading about all my life were just, uh, they were resonating on it uh, in inter internationally, wherever I'd go. Uh, this uh, themes of marginalization, and questions of, uh, of tone and skin color and so on and so forth. These, uh, I started to see that whether it was Japan or whether it was Brazil or South Africa, these themes were resonant. And I started to uh, find that these are things I could write about, that I could explore, that I could work on as a reporter and help elucidate for a broader audience. And that's what I started to do. Uh, and that led to, uh, after a Neiman here, uh, that led to a, a, a job at National Public Radio, where I was hired as uh, NPR's first uh, race relations correspondent. Uh, again, the idea of race, not uh, this uh, paradigmatic view of race that's limited to black and white, but, uh, but looking at race uh, in a broad sense of ethnicity and hue and tone, uh, and, and whether, again, involved uh, the the Again, we all know race is a false construct, and so it and so it was also, of course, a false construct uh, when when you look at what was happening to individuals in Japan. Again, Burakamin, uh, a class of people, uh, as in uh, India, Dalits, a class of people, and uh, who found themselves discriminated against for any number of reasons. And Hugh and Tom became part uh, among the factors. Uh, that uh, contributed to uh, their discrimination. As we travel again, fast forward into the into almost to the present, but not quite. 
I started to also find um, uh, my interest drifting to Europe uh, and what was happening in Europe um, in, in the, at the end of, um, of course, the Cold War was absolutely extraordinary. I think for many of us, uh, the, I remember sitting down with a friend uh, from Romania who uh, we were friends because we had very little in common. But we were friends because he was funny beyond belief. It was a sense of humor <laughs> that made us friends. But he was very much on the right. Uh, but he was also afraid. He was, uh, he was on the right because of uh, uh, his experiences during the Cold War. And he was on, uh, but the first thing he said when the wall came down and when Ceausescu uh, was uh, chased out of uh, Romania, he said the neo-Nazis are going to come out of the woodwork. Um, and I found that to be such an interesting uh, statement on, on his part. And when I went to Europe in 2003 on a German Marshall Fellowship to look at race and, uh, and uh, anti-Semitism in Europe, I started to also find of, of some of the stories that he talked about uh, actually manifesting in parts of Germany, where I went to Berlin to essentially look at uh, uh, ex-neo-Nazis and had gone to uh, uh, other parts of Europe to look at, uh, uh, at the conflicts that were occurring across uh, Europe. And this, um, my, my reason for being there strictly actually was looking at anti-racism movements <laughs> across Europe. To look, at, to look at coverage that wasn't received, that people weren't receiving for large demonstrations in Oslo, for example, against, uh, uh, against forces of reaction. Uh, people in Germany who were organizing um, uh, against, uh, against intolerance across uh, Hamburg and other places. And so I figured, hey, that's what I'll do. I'll focus on the fact that people are actually organizing against this type of reaction. That became um, a series of stories. I'm just gonna, like, I'll put. Let, let me stop Please, here. go we, we've, we, we are, I know we're running and, out, and I, yes. And I want to leave time for people to ask you questions. Absolutely. So, if, if I may, because Please, the, Alex, the, thing, the, things, the themes that you have raised are very, very important ones. Let me, I wanna ask just one question to start you, but then we'll open it up to the, uh, to the group. Uh, you have made a career, a lot of, of uh, your career has been focused on this issue of race. You framed it in uh, some respects in terms of, of, of skin tone, but you've gone well beyond that. You've come across that fundamental truth about American journalism, certainly, that poor people uh, are not like journalists and journalists are not like poor people and they don't know each other. And so journalists, with a few exceptions like you're talking about, don't report on journalists, on, on poor people, because they don't know poor people. They don't really have any exposure to poor people. Uh, to a certain extent, this is also true in terms of race. How can we, in journalism, break through that barrier? I mean, that seems to be such a core fundamental one. One of the things that strikes me that has happened in this country in the last 50 years is this incredible reversal in the way people feel about gays. Part of that is because they know gay people. They live with gay people. Gay people are in their families. That's not true of poor people. So what is it? How can we, how can we crack that? It's, it's, it's a great question, and I, I, think the, I think 
I think the first way of cracking it is to let people speak for themselves. To whenever we can, to basically, uh, uh, to, and this has happened at, at some journalism organizations. I mean, there's been some great series, by the way, uh, uh, New York Times, uh, National Public Radio, where where you allow uh, uh, people to basically speak for themselves to explain their situation. I went to um, uh, a place called Pikesville, uh, uh, Kentucky, a few years ago to interview poor whites uh, in 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 Pikesville uh, to and and the idea was basically to get uh, this has not aired yet this is interesting but to basically to grab voices from uh, from the perspective of an African American a poor white in the United States to, uh, to again to try to understand their situation their complexity the and I think the same thing is true in terms of uh, racial dynamics across the United States. I think it's important in, that we allow individuals to speak for themselves. Um, and, and, and of course, there are many examples of that, but it's just not enough. Uh, I, I, I still think that we, we exist in a society where, for good reason, uh, in, information is interpreted by experts. But oftentimes, the experts, you know, do what we all tend to do. They allow the, their expertise to become the, the proxy, the substitute for what the way people are really feeling. Mm. Uh, and, I, and I think that is problematic. And, and, and that's why journalism has to go deeper. It's, it's uh, uh, environmentally, this is uh, out of order to talk about oil derricks and dealing and drilling deeper. But, but, but it, I think the, the image that comes to mind is just, it's, it's, is if we ask certain questions of poor people, I think it's important that we allow them to answer those uh, those questions. Mm. I want to open this now to questions. Please. And I want to mm -hmm. uh, invite uh, students first. Uh, if you have a, a question and you'd like to introduce or a theme, and if not, then we will open it to uh, to the group in general. Um, yeah, John. Thanks, John. Um, whenever I have friends visit me in the city from New York or Los Angeles or other sort of big, sprawling, diverse metropolitan places, they're always struck by the degree of um, segregation in the city, particularly when they're on the T and then they'll be in a, an all-white car. And then if they do venture into other areas, they may be in a, a car with a lot of rich minorities. How do you see Boston right now? Because it, it, you would have thought that over the years um, that would have changed more. Uh, but, and demographically, I suppose the census would say it has some, but it's still the palpable feeling that, that I have. Over the years, it has changed. And, and I tried, try, John, to put it in perspective. I, I, even though I constantly go back to that intersection I talked about uh, in, of Mac and Mount Elliot, uh, both symbolically uh, and actually, I'm, all, I'm a middle-class guy, and I have, uh, and I've seen ba basically the city change in ways that are fundamental, uh, that are extraordinary. Uh, I, at one point, I remember going into the North End, and came back outside. Uh, we had gone with uh, a friend to basically pick up a dog uh, for, for someone. Came back outside, and my car windows were all smashed out. I remember uh, going into South Boston during the, um, um, uh, after the busing uh, 
uh, crisis, if you will, of night of the 70s, and this is in the 80s, uh, and essentially uh, getting into a scuffle uh, on the uh, on a train platform. Uh, it, the I, I remember uh, being afraid, if you will, to be in Charlestown uh, at night. The most ironic, most ironic thing about gentrification, if you will. Uh, Gentrification has made uh, some of these neighborhoods palatable for people of color. Uh, th that's, uh, I think that's, that's reality. I think that because the, the, these, some of these neighborhoods, the, they changed in terms of their class dynamic, and for some reason they opened up. And it's not a mystery why they opened up. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's the nature of gentrification in many ways. But they also closed. In many ways, even though you were able, you found yourself being able to, you found yourself being able to go to certain neighborhoods. You found yourself unable to afford to live in those neighborhoods. And this was this was true for both of, of white people who had formerly lived in those neighborhoods, like South Boston, and certainly true uh, for uh, people of color. And so, as the economic conditions, I think, worsen in Boston, and as we see. Uh, strict examples of income inequality in terms of rents uh, and so on and so forth. You find that people are being pushed uh, out of the city, uh, but I, and, and you find that the, the type of segregation that we uh, experienced years ago, it's manifesting in a very different way. Now, now it's manifesting in terms of poor people of various stripes being pushed to the outer limits. Uh, and uh, the city become unaffordable for many. But that's being perceived by many people who visit here. I just interviewed Julian Bond uh, the other day, and I thought, uh, who of course was the narrator on Eyes on the Prize. And I asked Julian Bond, I say, do you feel any differently about Boston than you felt when you first narrated the series Eyes on the Prize, including that series about anti-desegregation uh, resistance? He said, I'm still afraid of this city. He said, uh, he said, my wife wants to go to a baseball game. He says, I'm not going to a baseball game in Boston. I said, well, you know, Boston has changed fundamentally. Well, you can go to that baseball game without getting a beer can uh, uh, thrown at you. I, I had a beer can thrown at me at a, at a Red Sox game. I'm not kidding. And, uh, in what year was that? Huh? What year was that? 1981. Um, and, and I said, you can go to... You can go to um, these games without getting a beer can thrown at you. He said, well, you know, this is how, he, he admitted, this is how I perceive Boston. He has not, uh, that perception of Boston remains the same for many people across the country. And uh, it's why Mayor Walsh and others, uh, essentially, uh, the city of Boston just got a major grant to try to change the racial dynamic, the perceptions of race in Boston. It's a $1 million grant and so on and so forth. And it's why $1 million might not be enough, because there are many people across the country who really do continue to see Boston as it was the Boston of the 1970s uh, and the Boston of the 1980s. The Boston of 2015 is largely a more class demarcated Boston, and uh, where the per perception of uh, race has, has changed for me, but not for many people across the country. That's very interesting. Yes. I'm Aaron at the Ed School. Thanks for being here. Um, Thank you. I just had a question. I know that the late David Carr, when he was the editor of the Washington City Paper, brought on a lot of staff yes. from the city, like Johnny Cobb and Tanazi Cook, these folks, um, because he wanted to make the staff representative of the actual demographics of the city. Do you think that NPR or other organizations are doing 
what they can or doing enough to diversify their staff, or do you think much more needs to be done? It's yeah. <laughs> a great question. Um, I, I do think that NPR has basically made strives and made eff major effort, and some of those efforts have basically uh, seen uh, fruit. I mean, there. Uh, I think we have Code Switch, which is a uh, a a, con a concept put into action at NPR to to essentially interpret the 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 way words are used uh, that that have everything to do with race, but are basically seen uh, as uh, in, in ways that are implicit. Uh, and, and I think that the, the NPR has, has essentially, uh, I think they have, um, you have other examples of, of, of Michelle, uh, Michelle Norris. Uh, and who, right here. Uh, oh my God, Michelle, oh my God. That's, have I aged that much? My God! Oh my God! Unbelievable! That is unbelievable! I was I was going to mention your your your, your extraordinary. Uh, that is unbelievable! I swear. That is un that is is that unbelievable? My God! Well, well, Michelle is here. I'll mention it. That's really great. Who's done some extraordinary commentary? Uh, and uh, and work on 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 race with Walter uh, Walter e. Watson um, won a, um, a a Peabody Award for the work that they've that they've done on on race and so I would say that the, there has been um, certainly compared to the, a single race relations reporter uh, of um, of 1997-98 when I came on board and I left NPR in 2006. Um, I think that NPR has made some strides. I think that there are, like any news organization, there's a lot of work to be done. But the fact of the matter is, it's uh, working with individuals like Michelle and, and individuals like Keith Woods, who uh, uh, came from the, from the uh, Pointer Institute, uh, joined NPR uh, essentially in a, um, in a uh, managerial role. I think that there have been some efforts made, some strides made. What's your What's your view? I, I think it's the member stations. Yeah. Patrick, I mean, many of the other reporters. Thank you for that question. Mm -hmm. Come up through member stations, and if the member stations aren't reaching beyond their listenership to find um, to truly become broadcasters, so they're broadcasting to the broader community, it's hard for people to rise up through the system because most of the, the young people that come up the system, frankly, represent our listenership, which That's is overwhelmingly uh, white. That's right. And so it's, you know, for, for that pipeline to grow so there are more people, you know, to, to come up to the system, we really rely on the member state. They're our feeder system. They're, you know, it's, and that's, that's, that's very true with the NPR system. We have 700 plus member stations around the country and I travel a lot and I visit them. And the staff in the member stations is always, always, always overwhelmingly white. And it doesn't matter if you're in Toledo or if you're in Detroit. Um, there are a few exceptions. But that's where things need to change. And mm. that will then change up. That's right. You had a problem. Sure. Then I'll get you. I just wanted to go back to your uh, issue on reporting on poor black people, letting them speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. And to. Um, ask your advice, not for myself, but for my sister. Um, my sister is a, a documentary filmmaker, 
and she's made this film called Daddy Don't Go, and it's all about um, formerly incarcerated men, four men, who um, are sort of struggling with the various structural forces in, in their way to stay involved uh, with their uh, kids. And I've been working in criminal justice for 20 years um, as a prosecutor, as a Obama appointee, working directly for Governor Cuomo, and I've never, ever seen anything that gets the texture of the sort of life that these guys face so right, so complex, so um, that gives them so much humanity, so much dignity, but also looks at the poor decisions that they sometimes make. But the ultimate thing about the documentary is you come away understanding that these guys make a lot of mistakes, but the one thing that you really come through is the love of, that they have and their deep desire to stay with their kids. The question I have is, I've never seen anything this good, but the reception that my sister is getting and she's been to Sundance, she's had things on PBS, Showtime, she's not a rookie, is really sort of disturbing for me, which is everybody is telling her, you know, Sundance, Tribeca, everybody's telling her, too dark, too sad. And it's, it's scary for me, it's scary for my sister, who's invested, you know, three, four years of her life and gone into debt and all of these things. But it's even scarier for me because I haven't seen anything this realistic. And it really lets these guys speak for themselves. Has uh, she got so, any kind of a distribution right. mechanism that's, that's what I was going to ask her, huh? She does, I, I don't, I mean, I think she's trying to play it like most people in her situation, trying to look for the right festivals to sort of premiere it, but I think... You, you know, I almost I almost think that she should, in many ways, also perhaps try to join forces. Um, there's a book called The New Jim Crow. I, I'm sure everyone, is, many people are familiar with this. Um, this is, and the author of the, of the book is, uh, oh, um, someone help me out. Um, Michelle Alexander. Michelle, Michelle Alexander. And what, what Michelle Alexander has been able to do, I think, with her book, is to take it out of just the... Uh, this, this structure, I mean, the, uh, the, the confines of seeing uh, incarceration as, as a re result of individual choices, and has basically focused on the structural uh, racial nature, you know, of, uh, of our criminal justice system, uh, and as a prosecutor, you, you know, the many contradictions of our system, they're, uh, they're, uh, they're enormous, they're dr dramatic. I almost feel that she should almost join forces, if you will, if you will, uh, if, if she can, with individuals like Michelle Alexander, because there is a, um, I'm not sure what her, her larger purpose is to get the piece uh, aired, correct? That's her main purpose. And, and Michelle Alexander, uh, to her credit, is, uh, she's, I'm sure she'd like to be, have her voice amplified more. But right now, her you know her voice is and it's amplified quite a bit. But it's but she would like to I think to reach a much broader audience, and perhaps if the film uh, is um, uh, touches on many of the same themes, if it if it addresses uh, some of the structural crises in criminal justice that Michelle Alexander has been able to address in uh, in the new Jim Crow. Could you put him together? With uh, well, uh, I don't know her personally, but. But uh, yeah, Brian Stevenson exactly would be a good person to talk to you in know, that I regard. Think she, 
Oh, also people. I mean, I was at Sundance this year, and, and there aren't a lot of films that focus on the, That's right, and also people, uh, uh, POV might be a, a, a good, a good um, uh, vehicle. That's where her first film was. That's where, well, that, it might make sense to go back there, actually. Yeah. Um, this just goes back to the uh, representation in the newsrooms. I was just going to say, I worked many years at the Wall Street Journal, and now past eight at the, uh, or seven at the Wall Street, New York Times Bureau, but what I have seen in the course of my career, um, which is about as long as Michelle's, is that, uh, you know, past 35 years, I have seen a real, what I feel like is a regression in the um, uh, efforts put out by uh, people in journalism to hire both women and minorities, and I think it's worse for minorities from what I'm seeing. Um, but that said, uh, when it comes to covering poverty, I think that um, the mistake that has been made for too long is equating poverty with black people. That's and right. I think what we really need in this country is much more of a coverage to bring home to readers and viewers the extent, especially now we hear a lot about wage stagnation, a declining um, middle class, but the extent of white poverty out there uh, that I see in, in my travels, especially, you know, you go to New Hampshire, just covering the New Hampshire and Iowa primaries, you see it. Um, is just extraordinary, and I, I think there's a lag still for a lot of white Americans that, who still equate poverty with black people. You know, I, I agree with you 100. percent It's what it's what, one of the reasons I wanted uh, I one of the reasons I went down to Pikesville, Kentucky, and uh, and will probably make future trips to other places around the country, is a a, a filmmaker at the uh, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation had asked me if I would be interested. And working on a series of, which is essentially her idea of, of, of a black man travels through poor white America. And the idea of going down there was to uh, basically to see, to get some views, to see how this would work. And the idea is that unless we, unless folks see how structurally problematic poverty <clears throat> is in this country, and as long as I think, I think as long as it is seen as as you said, a black-white dynamic, or, or Latino-black uh, dynamic, where only poor people are black and Latino, and, and, there are, are, and there are relatively few white people. I think that's, the reason I think that's problematic is because it engenders this view uh, in, our, in, our, in our minds that this is what, this is America. And it's a false picture of America. Uh, and, and, it's, and, and until white people themselves understand the problems of, of, of structural um, uh, uh, problems in the country, both on, from a race point of view, but also in the context of income inequality. And that, uh, I mean, I've, I, the, one of the most ex interesting films I've ever seen was um, on, I think it was on Bill Maher's show, and I think it was Pelosi's daughter, where you had, I don't know if you saw this, where you had a, a, a fella who was absolutely toothless and absolutely not a dime to his name, condemning Obamacare. Uh, I don't know if anyone saw this. It, it, and then uh, the same, and then uh, talking about government aid and how no one should be on government aid. Um, and then the greatest contradiction, of course, is toward the end of the film, where he, of course, admits that he's on government aid. Um, and unless those contradictions, I think, come to to the fore, journalistically. Uh, I, I think that we we uh, we don't basically um, 
elucidate a, 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 the larger problem in the country, uh, which again is is the, the structural problems of poverty and of, uh, of race. I'm sorry to say we are out of time. These are very important issues and very profound ones, and I thank you, Philip. Thank you, Alex, and I'm sorry I raised <laughs>